Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Sidney Rumitstein. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review from someone who goes by the name Chiropractor in Sweden, uh, who says this podcast is simply the best. Well, thank you for that review, Chiropractor in Sweden. I look forward to sharing your iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Sidney Rubenstein. Sidney Rubenstein is an associate professor at the VU University, Amsterdam, and adjunct research professor at Southern California University of Health Sciences. He is also a registered epidemiologist in the Netherlands. He has more than 60 publications in international peer-reviewed journals, including three systematic reviews in the Cochrane Library. His research focuses on effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of interventions in musculoskeletal disorders. His broader goals are to lessen the burden of neck and low back pain to society by providing high-quality scientific evidence. The projects that he currently supervises are strongly embedded in clinical practice, including the PTED trial, warrior trial, an IPD or individual patient data meta-analysis on spinal manipulative therapy for chronic low back pain, and a large international observational study in chiropractic care in the elderly. One of his passions lies in systematic reviews and meta-analyses, as these types of overviews represent a crucial link in the practice of evidence-based healthcare. He is actively involved in conducting and supervising these reviews, including a position as uh, or on the associate editorial board of the Cochrane Back and Neck Pain uh, Review Group. His reviews are quite diverse. One of the more recent Cochrane reviews focused on complications of trocar types for laparoscopic surgery, while another has examined the effectiveness of exercise for acute low back pain. An update of the Cochrane Review of the Effect of Spinal Manipulative Therapy for Chronic Low Back Pain has been accepted by the BMJ and soon to be published. Dr. Rubenstein currently supervises five PhD students as well as master's students and teaches methodology of systematic reviews and meta-analyses at various levels, including the bachelor's, master's, and PhD students. One chiropractor has received his PhD under Sydney's supervision, while others are completing theirs. Well, Dr. Rubenstein, and, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. My, my pleasure. My pleasure. 
Yeah, well, uh, let's start out with uh, how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor. Um, okay, it's actually quite a, quite a bit of a funny story. And it's actually by chance that I considered becoming a chiropractor. I was an amateur cyclist at the time, and the team doctor was a chiropractor. At that time, I was working on my master's in exercise physiology. I knew that I wanted to go further, but wasn't sure which direction. I would considered two options, working on a PhD in exercise physiology or pursuing a medical degree. Actually, there was a third option, becoming a beach bum and continue to scuba dive and cycle. But that didn't <laughs> seem that didn't seem to be a real career option. <laughs> now, I think it's important for the listeners to to understand my background. My father was a medical doctor, and my brother was completing his residency as an orthopedist. They worked exceptionally hard and long hours, as I wasn't sure actually that this was for me. At that time, I was growing increasingly interested in the idea of the body being able to heal itself. It's actually something that still fascinates me. So my chiropractic friend, the team doctor, took me to LACC to have a tour of the campus. I looked at the brochure and read the philosophy and was actually sold on the idea. I liked the idea that you could help someone using your hands. It's actually something that still, as I mentioned, still fascinates me. A surgeon does the same thing, but it's different. Surgery is invasive. What we do recognizes the inherent or innate forces of the body. Now, once I applied and got accepted, I told my father, <laughs> needless to say, he wasn't very impressed, to put it mildly. Now, when I started my education, I started questioning whether I'd made the right choice, but I met some incredible people along the way who put me on the right path and influenced my development. One of those people was Scott Haldeman, and actually the reason why I got into chiropractic research. The other is my wife. Needless to say, no, I didn't have any personal experience with chiropractic, and it was actually only at some point in time in my first year of chiropractic school that I actually received an adjustment. My wife, who is also a chiropractor and comes from a long family of chiropractors, finds this incredible. So maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm just lucky, but I think I've made some good decisions in life, and one of those was to, was to become a chiropractor. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, uh, it's fascinating that your family was in medicine and uh, how how things came about. Uh, so you mentioned Dr. Scott Haldeman and and how you might have gotten involved in research. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. That's that's it's also also a bit of a bit of a funny story. Um, I was in my second year of chiropractic school and looking for some extra pocket money. And at that time, a good friend and classmate, he came to me one day and he told me that a certain Scott Haldeman was looking for some research associates. I had absolutely no idea who he was. I'd seen his name in a book somewhere, but had no real interest in research. And after completing my master's, actually was done with research. I was, it, was a, it was a laborious process. I didn't find it interesting. I didn't find it fun. And I was, and I was done. I'd had enough. Well, obviously, my contact with Scott changed all that. At some point in time, he said to me, you know, there are very few chiropractors with PhDs. And at that time, that certainly was the case. This is something that stuck with me, stuck with me in the years following. Now, shortly thereafter, after graduating from chiropractic school, my wife and I moved to the Netherlands. I didn't speak the language at the time, nor did I know the culture. It was actually a bit of a culture shock for me. But after a few years, I started to gain my footing. I was looking for a way to advance myself. Now, there were a number of things that were going on in Holland at that time, and this, is, this would be sometime, sometime in the early 90s. Two well-respected researchers and now world leaders had just received their PhDs. One was Pim Asendelft, 
who performed many reviews of chiropractic care and SMT. I'm not sure if any listeners will recognize his name. And another is Mars Fintolder, of course, is, is a world leader in low back pain. He's, he's, he was my mentor at the time, and he's still my mentor, as it were, and, and we, work, we work closely together. Um, he's actually my boss at the university. I must say, actually, both of them, both Pim and Mars, are someone, uh, people who are closely, still closely work with. Um, just to go back to how I got into research, I first started off, Mars' suggestion, first started off with a simple descriptive study in 1999, and basically went off on from there. One of the things I also want to say is, is that my wife, who's, who's a chiropractor, has also had a significant and important impact on my research. We talk a lot about research in home. And she's influenced much of my thinking and, and the way that I, I approach her. Actually, without her, I dare say, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish many of the things I've, uh, I've achieved in life. And there's just one other thing I want to say, actually. There's one other significant person that, that's helped me to my development as a researcher, and that was Charlotte LeBouf. Um, I'm not sure... I'm not sure if the listeners would recognize her name. Charlotte, of course, has got quite a long, long service in in chiropractic research. She continues to publish, and and she was in, she was also an, an an important mentor for me during my uh, during my research uh, research career in the beginning of my research. Yeah, that's fascinating. I and I really appreciate you going through that. I I think it's helpful for our listeners to gain an appreciation of how one gets into research. And I had a similar experience to you after my master's degree. I thought, well, I'd, I don't want to do any more. Uh, but it's funny how things uh, seem to pull us back uh, into the research aspect of things. So that's great. Um, now, I understand that you have a, a practice, chiropractic practice still these days. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 correct. I've been actually working in practice since since 1992. Um, at the time, it was full time, four days a week, five days a week, something like that. Um, at the moment, my time is basically split between working uh, two and a half, actually three days a week in the practice, and basically three days a week doing research. So it's um, it's it's quite quite a hard schedule, I should say. Yeah, well, uh, do you have any advice? Because I'm always looking for some. Because if anybody knows how to balance those two, that'd be it's, helpful. It's 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 difficult. It's extremely difficult. I think one of the things is I can say is I'm extremely efficient with my time. Um, when I'm in the when I'm in the practice and I have a few minutes or whatever, I mean I'm. I'm looking at mail. Obviously, it's not not to the advantage of anyone, but I'm doing. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a week, and um, you know, I think uh, I think I'm just exceptionally uh, effective with my uh, with my time. But it's it's extremely difficult to to balance the two. I mean, at the university, the um, there's no there's no other senior researcher uh, in our department who uh, who splits clinical clinical practice with with research. It's it's absolutely. <laughs> actually a bit of an impossible task i should say yeah no i i 100 agree so you've published so many articles in top journals we can't possibly talk about them all but i i know that you want to talk about uh the recently completed update of the cochrane review on the effect of spinal manipulative therapy for chronic low back pain and that that's been recently published in the bmj as i mentioned previously 
Could we spend a little time talking about that? Uh, and then more generally, I guess, um, I'd love to hear your experience and your ideas about uh, what systematic reviews and meta-analyses can tell us as well. So. Sure. Sure. This is this is a minor correction. The the systematic review is to be published uh, this week or the coming week in in the BMJ. So it hasn't been hasn't been officially published yet, but it has been accepted, and um, so it'll be published uh, published soon. Great. Um, essentially, yeah, I'd like to talk about it because I think it's an exceptionally important review, and I think it has some important implications for us as chiropractors. Um, Essentially, it's an update of the previous Cochrane review. Now, the previous Cochrane review on the effect of spinal manipulation for chronic low back pain was last published in 2011. We last searched for studies in 2009. So you can imagine the last 10 years have been some important and significant articles likely to influence the results and those conclusions. Um, in the previous review, we concluded that actually SM appears to be no better, no, no worse than existing therapies. I thought at the time actually was a was a positive conclusion. Um, my uh, my feeling is, is that many of many of the people uh, reading that um, didn't particularly appreciate that or feel it was a positive conclusion. But we can we can get to that. Um, I can just share a f take a few moments to say something about the methodology. I'm not going to talk about that too much. Actually, most important results and conclusions. But essentially, in this update, um, we use the same methodology. So we looked at studies conducted by chiropractors, by physiotherapists, by osteopaths, by bone setters, um, and we looked at the effect of spinal manipulation versus non-recommended therapies, recommended therapies, sham spinal manipulation, and spinal manipulation as an adjuvant or additional therapy. Now, in the previous review, we looked at the effect of spinal manipulation versus effectiveness in ineffective therapies, ineffective therapies, whereas in this review, we looked at the effect of spinal manipulation versus recommended and non-recommended therapies. Subtle difference, but I think it has some important implications for us um, for us as chiropractors, certainly with regard to, to recommend recommendations. So, in this update, we identified 21 new studies, and in, that in, we included um, a total of 47 RCTs, represent approximately 9,000 participants. So, it's approximately uh, twice as many studies uh, as, in the, as, as in the previous review. Now, one of the most important conclusions of, um, of the review is we found that SMT seems to produce similar effects as recommended therapies for pain relief and improvement in functional status. And SMT seems to produce better effects as non-recommended therapies for short-term improvement in functional status, but not pain relief. Okay, so get back to the first um, result, which I mentioned, SMT produces similar effects as recommended therapies for pain relief and improvement of functional status. The implications are that SMT should be considered a first-line treatment option. I mean, if, if recommended therapies such as exercise or, or prescription medication are, or cognitive behavioral therapy are recommended, then spinal manipulation certainly should also be included in that if the effects are similar. And this for the listeners that might not potentially sound so impressive, but consider that in the Lancet series, okay, which summarized the national guidelines where it states that SMT should be considered a second treatment option. I've got it in front of me. Okay, following exercise therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. This, these results 
of this review suggests certainly the SMT is certainly on par with these other treatments options eh, and, and, and should be considered. Now, maybe in North America, uh, that's not such an issue, but in the rest of the world, certainly in Europe, um, uh, S SMT is, is, or maybe even England, hey, SMT is considered as a, as a second line option. So I, I think the implications of this review are going to be in, uh, huge, at least, at least I hope so. Um, I don't know if, um, if you had a particular question about that, Dean, or wanted to throw something in. Well, I, I think that's absolutely huge. Uh, this is the first time I'm hearing it, so wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I and I agree. I don't have the Lancet in front of me, but I just did uh, a recent look at that, and, and you're right. And in fact, I don't even think the medicine was first line, right, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, they divided, divided into pharma, pharmacological and non-pharmacological non treatment, and certainly the movement is away, is away from pharmacological treatment, given the fact that, for example, in the States, you have this huge opioid, opioid crisis, you know, and, and so the focus, the focus of many of these national guidelines, uh, whether it be in the States or England, and there's nice guidelines, uh, is certainly on non-pharmacological non therapies. The emphasis seems to be on exercise and cognitive behavior therapy. I understand that. And the reason why is, is that spinal manipulation is seen as a passive therapy. Um, you know, the idea is that patients should be in control of their own, of their own low, low back pain. And I think that's great. That shouldn't exclude um, spinal manipulation, chiropractic care. I think chiropractors should use, have we use spinal manipulation, but it's important to inform our patients and important for them um, to to basically uh, basically treat themselves, as it were, through through exercise, advice, and this kind of thing. And I think that's that's essentially that's 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 an important role that we have. It's not just it's not just cracking backs or manipulating low backs. It's also it's also educating our patients so that they don't become patients. And Absolutely. I Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's an important role that we have as chiropractors. For sure. And, uh, you know, some of the more recent studies that uh, I've sort of refreshed my mind about have, when they've compared chiropractic or spinal manipulation with exercise and then coupled exercise plus the manipulation, it seems like there's added benefit uh, to incorporating both. So it seems to, you know, make sense to me. And, and as you started out with chiropractors are, you know, more, I guess, holistic for lack of a better term. And, and it seems like we incorporate these, uh, types of treatments anyways, as part of our care. <laughs> so it's a nice package. Yeah, to to use the um, uh, I think it was Greg Greg Kotchak who said at one of the one of the meetings this is a great time to be actually to be a chiropractor and I I I think so, you know and I think and I think and I'm hoping that this review will will help to promote um, use of chiropractic care, um, uh, certainly in 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 North America and the rest of the world. I mean in North America chiropractic care is is, is recognized by and large. Hey, but certainly in other parts of the world, certainly in Europe, um, it's it's a different story. I mean, uh, chiro chiropractors here, for example, in Holland, um, were so-called alternative healers, um, and that's actually quite a bit, actually quite remarkable because manual therapists who perform the same type of care uh, are recognized. Uh, and chiropractors aren't, but that's, that's, that's another, that's another issue. Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't know that. Uh, hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I know another thing that, uh, that you wanted to hit on today was the, the idea of what a systematic review is and what, uh, it's capable of telling us and, and perhaps how chiropractors can interpret the evidence that comes from these types of studies. And, and I realize that you're an expert in this, so I'm glad you're on telling us about it because there's nobody better to, to be telling us this information. Yeah. Well, systematic reviews are essentially the, are the, the, the summary of the, the available information. And um, I think it's, it's important that it, it's, it's basically the, the pinnacle of, 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 our, of, our, of our evidence base. I mean, you, you had mentioned um, earlier, you know, of a study where uh, the additional benefit of spinal manipulation was examined. But systematic reviews are, are basically a summary of, of all the available information, not just, not just the positive studies, but also the negative studies. Um, we can potentially talk about the implications of that a little bit later because that's, that borders or that has to do with something known as publication bias. And that's a huge issue, I think, in, in healthcare. It's actually something that affects all of us. But systematic reviews, I think, are, are actually, actually the, the, yeah, as I mentioned, the, the pinnacle of our, of our evidence base. And, and, and I think the, the struggle is, is to, um, uh, is to identify. Actually, the struggle is just cherry picking the studies which fit our paradigm, as it were. And systematic reviews are are the summary of all that available information, not just those that fit our paradigm, but those that maybe go contrary to 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 how we think or what we what we feel, how how an intervention might work. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think, I think it may be a long answer to your to your question, but um No, 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 that's that's terrific. So yeah, I mean you mentioned that uh this is the systematic reviews are at the top of the pyramid. So you know what I guess uh since you're an expert in this area, what what do we do with all of that other information that's below or you know, toward the lower levels of the pyramid? Do we you know, once we have these systematic reviews, do we just uh, get rid of that? <laughs> or, uh, and then the other question, I guess, is what about clinical practice guidelines? Uh, uh, how do those fit in here as well? Those those seem to be at the top of the pyramid too. And how do we reconcile these things? Sure. Let's, let's deal with your first question. Um, um, it, dep- it depends upon what the research question is. You know that evidence-based period pyramid is the summary of actually summary of the information, but it depends upon what your question is. Hey, so for example, if you want to know uh, something about prognostic factors, then you'd want to conduct um, an observational longitudinal study. If we want to know something about diagnostic accuracy, if we want to know, for example, mammography is an effective screening tool for for women with breast cancer. Or we want to know about effectiveness, then you'd want to conduct a randomized control trial. If you want to know something about the existing uh, data or information on a given area or, or cost effectiveness, then you'd have to look at systematic reviews, economic evaluations. If you want to know the association of, say, a rare event to a given exposure, then you'd have to look at case control studies. Or if you want to describe treatment for for a rare condition or something then you then you'd look at case studies or case series so so um um 
so it depends upon what you what your question is you know um, systematic reviews are great when it's summarizing inf uh, information on effectiveness or diagnostic accuracy um, but if you have another research question yeah you might you might just have to look at individual studies um, because given uh, for a particular question there might only be a few a few studies and you know that's, that's not certainly not uh, not worth it to uh, to uh, conduct a systematic review on that Great. Yeah, that was a terrific answer and exactly uh, what I was hoping for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so so system, systematic reviews answer an important question, but it depends upon what, what, that, what that question is. Gotcha. And, and what about clinical practice guidelines as a, as a follow-up to that? How do they fit in? Do they essentially use the meta-analyses and systematic reviews to uh, put forth the, what clinicians should be doing? or To, 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 a, large, to a large extent, they are. The, the in clinical guidelines are based upon systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Um, just for the just for the listeners that they understand, systematic reviews is is the the entire process of of summarizing the data, beginning with formulating research questions, searching literature, selecting the studies, assessing the methodological quality, and combining those results. Meta analysis is only is only is only a small part of that. It's the statistical method for combining from individual comparable studies. So. Um, that the listeners understand the, the difference between what a systematic review is, that's, that's the entirety, and a meta-analysis is only that, that a small aspect, a small aspect of that. But getting back to the question, the, the role of systematic reviews in, in guidelines, systematic reviews will help to inform a guideline commission to, to make, to make policy. But, um, that, that policy is, is largely determined by who's, who's on, uh, who's on the committee. Hey, for example, here in Holland, um, uh, spinal manipulation actually wasn't even in, included in the, in the guidelines. It wasn't really even, even considered. And I think that has largely due to the fact that there was, there wasn't a chiropractor in, involved or, or a manual therapist. For example, in, in North America, in Canada or, or in the States. I mean, of, of course, chiropractors are quite integrated, so so they're all part of this guideline procedure, and so of course, spinal manipulation is is is, is recommended. So, systematic reviews inform um, guidelines, but um, they're not directly translated into uh, into policy. Yeah, right. It's, it's people people who are interpreting these data and and making decisions. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say it. It still requires people. <laughs> it still requires people. Yeah. 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 And so, well, that gets us to another thing that I know you wanted to talk about, which was publication bias and, you know, some of the, the potential strengths and, and the weaknesses of these kinds of studies. So maybe you can talk about that yeah. a little bit. It, 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 plays, it, it plays a huge role in system, systematic reviews because systematic reviews are a summary of all the available information. Actually, the, the should be a summary of all the available information. But um, with publication bias, um, it's it's the positive studies, studies with positive findings, have a greater chance of being being published. So it's typically the smaller studies with negative findings that are not that are not published. Um, so you can imagine if you have a summary of studies that all have positive findings, uh, it would seem to suggest that an intervention works or works works well. Um, there are lots of examples in in the literature where um, 
publication bias has been a huge issue. So, for example, um, the Mexican flu that broke out here in Holland about 10 years ago. And about 10 years ago here in Holland and UK and Australia, we bought in billions, of, uh, spent billions of dollars in buying in um, uh, something called Tamiflu. I don't know if it's uh, what the trade name in, is in the States. Yeah, yeah it's same, it same name here. Okay. It turns out it turns out it doesn't work. And now you can imagine now here in Holland or the UK and Australia, these people are not stupid. They're not going to spend billions of dollars on something that doesn't work. And it, and the, and I think the decision was partly based upon a Cochrane review. I mean, Cochrane reviews they're they're you know above above uh, critique. Problem was that Cochrane review, as, at least sort of I understand it, the Cochrane review was based upon only a part of the evidence, and and. The, the part of Evans seems to suggest that it worked that it worked well. Now, um, now Roche Pharmaceutical, um, and this is this is all to read on the on the internet. Roche Pharmaceutical had not had not released the studies that seemed to suggest that it didn't work. Um, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So so um, and <laughs> I mean, pharmaceutical company is is not in the business of of of. Um, now let me put it this way: They're not a philanthropic organization. They're right. <laughs> they're there to make their, they keep their um, uh, their uh, Andale Howders. Um, sorry, for lack of a better word, I can't find the word in English. Um, they're they're there to keep they're there to keep people happy. They're there to make money, and um, and so they didn't publish the negative studies. And there's lots of other examples, um, things affecting us. Even something today. Um, um, one of the board members of the Cochrane collaboration, Peter Gotsche, the um, he's been uh, he's critical of, of of big pharma, and um, there was a recent uh, Cochrane review which looks at the effect of the uh, human papilloma uh, uh, HPV um, uh, vac- vaccine, and um, it was a Cochrane review. It was. Um, it was the 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 authors were funded by industry, and they included by and large um, by and large those those positive studies. And there's there's suggestion that actually doesn't work well. It might even be dangerous. There's same questions that can be raised about potentially about mammography. Um, so so publication bias is it, it seems like an academic issue, but it's something that affects us affects all of us. And and so, when you conduct a systematic review, the idea is um, is you try to you try to uh, gather all the available information, okay? not just the positive studies, not just those studies that fit our paradigm, but also those studies with with negative re- negative results. The, the problem the problem is if those studies aren't published, it's it's difficult to make to make a dis- decision. Um, there is a technique that. That we can um, something we can do, we construct something known as a funnel plot, in order to um, see if potentially there's a study with negative findings, but still it's only it's only a, a suggestion. Okay? Gotcha. So that's that's an important that's an important implication, an important uh, yeah of, of, uh, of yeah conducting systematic reviews. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hopefully. 
you know, we get letters to the editor and things of that nature that come out uh, that we can look for as well to point some of these things out, especially for clinicians who may not be doing this, you know, may not have ever been involved in a systematic review, but realize, hey, you know, uh, I'm sure there could be more sure. to the story. Sure. Uh, we have to rely on our researchers to... And, and, and something with regards to the spinal manipulation uh, review, you know, you can also ask yourself, okay, then I'm being exceptionally critical. I'm the... I'm I'm the researcher. It, it depends upon where I am and what you ask me. Whether I'm researcher first or a chiropractor first. Um, if you look at if you look at the studies that we included in the in the BNJ publication, I mean they're all basically initiated by virtually all by by clinicians, and and so you can imagine you know there might be some studies that are set up and designed and conducted and potentially not published. Um, because the results are are contrary to what we believe, um, you know, or they or the the data is massaged to you know to demonstrate positive findings, and there's all sorts of tricks you can do to, in order to to um, come up with some positive results. Sure, sure, okay. yeah, absolutely. But I mean the but I mean the hey, so for example, just for example, maybe for the listeners, hey, um, what are some of those tricks? Well, you can you can measure ten different outcomes, hey, and and you report those outcomes that are statistically significant. Well, we know what the most important outcomes are in the case of low back pain. There's a there's um uh you know we have a core core set of outcomes: pain, functional status, recovery, quality of life, return to work, that kind of thing. You know, those are the outcomes you would expect to see. But, uh, you know, some studies, they might say, yeah, well, you know, we found this to be statistically significant and report about that in the abstract, for example, and all the other outcomes which were measured, um, uh, you know, are not, are not reported or reported somewhere else and given less, uh, less, um, uh, less importance. So there's all sorts of, all sorts of tricks that um, researchers can do to massage the, the results the way they want it, you yeah. know. Right, for sure. That's unfortunate. <laughs> so, so then, how do we, uh, for the chiropractor in practice, or maybe uh, chiropractors who have some, uh, let's say, political influence or legislative influence, uh, how, how should they go about uh, the impact of of these types of studies in particular for clinical practice? In other words, what do what do they what do they do with them? Um, you know, the, we have these conclusions. Do we then just say, "Hey, uh, legislators, here's uh, here's the results of the recent uh, you know meta analysis on low back pain. We'd like you to include chiropractic care into uh, sure. into the practice of you know whatever." I I I think I think we make a, make a strong argument. I mean, for example, the, this update to the systematic review, I mean, we've, uh, we've included 47 RCTs representing more than 9,000 individuals. We, and, we know, and, and we know what the effects are. We, we have strong confidence in it, um, and, and we can predict what the effect will be in a future trial. Now, that, that might sound a bit strange and a bit funny. Okay? For, for those who are versed in, in, in research or whatever, I mean, when we express an effect, as it were, we have this expressed with a, with a confidence interval, as it were. Okay? 
So a confidence interval basically says if we were to repeat this study basically 100 times, 95 percent of the time, we can be pretty sure where the effect will lie. Will lie somewhere within that margin of error. Now, in prediction intervals, we can predict what the result will be in a future trial, and we've we've done that. So, so we pretty we pretty much know. I mean, I dare say we're we're done. You know, we we know what the effect is of spinal manipulation compared to recommended therapies. We we don't have to do this anymore. Um, we can, I think we can make a relatively strong argument, but there's all sorts of things actually we, we still don't know. Um, for example, we don't know if it's cost-effective, uh, cost-effective, and actually one of the most important things is, um, is we don't know who's, li- who's likely to benefit from spinal manipulation for clo- chronic low back pain. Now, I've got, I've got 25 years of experience in, in the field, and I still can't predict which patients likely to benefit from from spinal manipulation. Now, one of the things we've done in the last few years is a good colleague of mine. She's working on a PhD. She'll probably finish up this year. We've, um, and you mentioned it, Dean, at the beginning of the, at the introduction, and something called an individual patient data meta-analysis. It's, um, in short, it's an IPD meta-analysis. We have the individual patient data of something like 20 randomized controlled trials. Now, in a systematic review meta-analysis, um, just to explain a little bit to the, to the listeners, um, we take what's called the aggregate data. This is the data that's reported in the trials, and we pool that. We combine those results. Now, in individual patient data analysis, we have the actual individual patient data which means we can construct uh, our own models, we can, we can correct for confounders and effect modifiers, and we can look at these kinds of things. That's actually the, 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 the goal of, of IPD meta-analysis. Um, and, um, and with this type of analysis, we're able to look at who's, which patients are likely to benefit from care. Um, the, problem, the problem is, even, even with all the something like 5,000 patients, 21 randomized controlled trials, we still weren't able to identify which patients are likely to benefit from, from, from spinal manipulation. So even with my experience and even with conducting these quite sophisticated analyses, we still don't know which patients are most likely to benefit from spinal manipulation. And, and, and very broadly... Um, we can say those patients with acute low back pain are most likely, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have a favorable prognosis, whereas those with chronic low back pain, you know, uh, less favorable prognosis. But that's but that's uh, that's pretty much it, you know. Right, right, yeah. There's a there's a whole lot more to know, absolutely. And um, you know, I I just look at my own research and it's kind of like the Wild West looking at certain measures of function and performance. There's just really nothing out there. So yeah. I yeah, it's it's frustrating but exciting at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well uh I really appreciate all of the great information you're giving us. Uh one last thing, if I could uh just tap you for one more thing, and that is um my, my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, one of the goals of this podcast is to get more chiropractors into research. 
And so what I'd like to ask you is um, anything that you could offer, uh, any kind of advice you could offer to those folks who might be considering a research career in chiropractic uh, or manual therapies or, or whatever the case may be, uh, what, what advice might you give them? Um, it's actually quite, quite simple. Um, I think you need to seek a mentor who's, um, who can, who can basically guide you. You know, I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning, I was, um, I met some incredible people along the path and, and people who helped, who helped guide me. You know, I met Scott Haldeman. Um, I met Charlotte LaBeouf. Um, my wife has had an important influence uh, on on me. Um, you know, I've met some incredible people. And, and, you know, Mars Fentilder, he's he was an important mentor for me. And Pim, Fenos- uh, Pim Ostendorf was an important mentor for me in, in the beginning years. Mars is still, he's still my mentor and my boss, as it were. And 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 these are people who influence the, the way I think. And and so for for anyone contemplating the research career, it's important to have someone who's who's knowledgeable, who has a passion. Um, but it but the, there has to be also, of course, a certain passion within the person themselves. Um, when I started working on uh, research, I worked I worked one day a week at the university. Um, I was paid basically pittance. We received something like 40,000 euros for four years, half of which went to my research assistant, and the rest of half, rest of half of that uh, 20,000 went to me for four, for four years. And I invested an enormous amount of time, my own energy, into, into you know, working on my PhD. I didn't know where it was going to, where it was going to take me, but um, so there's two things. The person has to be extremely motivated and there's going to be lots of moments I mean if you bark upon that path there's lots of moments where you think I don't know why I'm doing this I mean there's also times when I come home from the university I think I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this anymore and but um, you know we all have we all have uh, moments of doubt and moments of failure but um, you know it's it's um, it's it's you know beautiful to be able to to ad, ad, uh, advance knowledge to you know provide uh, uh, you know information and and as I mentioned in fact it's important to have a mentor someone who's who has also has a certain shares shares that same passion and uh, so that would be that would be my advice for sure and that's fantastic advice and I tell you what we really appreciate everything that you do so please keep up what you're doing. Uh, we, I think we all, whether we're in practice or, uh, or doing research or maybe a combination of both, uh, we do have those days, but realize that, uh, uh, your work is highly valued. So thank you for doing what you do. And, and thanks for being on the the podcast today. Really appreciate it. My, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with Dr. Sidney Rubenstein. Well, I'm really excited that you got to hear this episode because that paper in BMJ, British Medical Journal, dealing with chiropractic or spinal manipulation therapy and chronic low back pain is going to be a huge paper for the profession. So thanks again for listening. Take care and have a wonderful day.